The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. You can ask a question there via the Lister Inquiry button as well as listen to old archive shows. And speaking of old archive shows, it's been a while since we've been uh, here together. It's good to see you guys again. I hope you're all doing well and had a great summer. Yes, uh, great to see you virtually here, Scott. Yes. And, uh, I'm looking forward to being back in the studio with you. But, but now, uh, yeah, it was a great summer, thanks. But now you're looking good on a little wee computer screen. What the heck? <laughs> I know. I, you know what, honestly, would not have thought that we would be um, still doing this virtually yeah. instead of uh, face-to-face when we cast off and said goodbye in the summertime. You know, it's and, uh, and now, you know, obviously we've, we've talked a lot on the show over the summer about what the new normal is, how life changes. Uh, when this started, it seemed as if, uh, when do we get back to normal? And that's kind of out the window. It's now what is the new normal as we move forward. And, you know, the same thing when it comes to financial planning. Uh, obviously, something like a pandemic throws, the, you know, a stick in the spokes. It changes everything. And I'm thinking right now with my own situation and the kids heading back to school, one of my kids heading to university and, you know, having to call you guys up and say, hey, what do I do with the RESP and how does that affect uh, you know, my kid going to school without staying in residence because first year's online. So uh, lots, of, lots of questions this year. And you're not the first one to uh, contact me about this, uh, Scott. So I had a number of calls this year because a lot of our clients, uh, kids are, again, first year university, very different, particularly because they're, 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 they're not paying for residence. They're mm-hmm. paying for their tuition costs. Um, books are maybe not be as big a deal because a lot of things are online learning now, too. So they're downloading a lot of things. And so as much as the average cost of going to university has gone up, this is a strange year. And hopefully they will be back to residence, uh, say, in January or the second semester because or second term because, you know, this is not part of the education is not simply the books. Yeah. Part of the education is living on your own. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is great to see, though, that, you know, you and many others had, had – you know, use the RESPs, because really when it comes down to it, it's great to have this lump sum of money sitting there, knowing the peace of mind, knowing that their education is to a large part looked after. You know, maybe not 100%, you know, they'll have to work and add to the pot, but at the same time, it's not as big a deal because you've prepared for it. And, you're, you know, and it's, it doesn't happen overnight. It's taken a lot of years. And also with this year, I know with my daughter, uh, first year not on campus. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, that's less of an expense, which means that pile of money can stay in there longer and, and compound, can it not? It's, it's a good thing in that sense, is it not? Absolutely. No, it's a great, great opportunity. It may just uh, make the funds last longer because of this. And really, let's just kind of go over the RESP rules, because I find there's just a, a lot of confusion still, and a lot of people are missing the boat. They just don't think it's worth it. Um, perhaps I'm not quite sure, or maybe they just didn't use it as a priority, or perhaps they didn't tell their parents, or which would be the, you know, the recipient's grandparents, 
that maybe this would be a good thing that they could add a few dollars to also. So really, in a nutshell, there is $7,200 of government grant money available for every person, every, every potential student going to university. And how it works is you put in a dollar, and the government will, will put in 20 cents. So it's a 20% matching and up to, 72, uh, up to $7,200. And so that's, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's a lot of money that the government's willing to put money for the student. And it really means you have to put in 36000 to get their 7200 And so that seems like a big number. But if you work it out, it works out that you put in $2,000 a year for 18 years, and the government will put in 7200 Now, the limit is it used to be $2,000 per year. They moved that up to $2,500 per year. And so you can, if you, you can catch up. So you can put in $2,500 the first year, and you can literally be way ahead. You can actually have all the contributions done in about 14 and a half years. So if you're really diligent and disciplined, you can put $2,500 before December 31st of the year the, the child was born, and then every year after put $2,500, and that would get you in 14 and a half years later, you'd be up to your $3,600, and the government grant of $7,200 would be added to that. Uh, or you can simply just say, I'm going to put 2000 a year and let it just go that way. So I looked at the two options, and if you just put in your $2,000 a year for 18 years, and let's say you got a 5% rate of return, you would end up with $56,000 of your own money after that 18 years. Well, the government grant money of 7200 would have grown to 11252 so you actually would have had $67,000 sitting there if you just did $2,000 per year. Now, the average cost of education right now, is, right across Canada, is just short of 20000 a year. And that includes residents going, you know, living away from the home. So as Scott, as you just mentioned, it's a little less expensive right now because they're not doing that. The students are, to the most part, there are some courses, uh, nurses that have clinical uh, and they have to go to university still, or maybe they're in fourth year. But most of the first year right now, first-year residents are staying at home right now, and, you know, obviously for the pandemic reasons. Now, if you were to say, I'm going to put in $2,500 a year, and I'm going to do that for 14 and a half years, and I'm going to just let the money sit there till they're 18, you'd, end, you'd end up, actually end up with 70105 which ends up being about a $2,600 increase and that's simply because you got more money working for you for a longer period of time. And so, great, great idea to do it earlier. Now, it's interesting, that 70000 that seems, now people are saying, what about that 5% return? I don't know if I can do that. I'm looking at most of my clients, and, and they're sitting at around $70,000. In fact, somewhere between seventy and eighty seems to be the norm. So, what I mean, what you should be looking at here is, how do I invest those funds? Because if you're just putting in and into a daily interest account, and let's say you got one thousand one percent return on your money over those eighteen years, well now you're going to end up with eleven thousand dollars less in the RESP. I don't know about you, Scott, but I'd rather have that eleven thousand dollars sitting there waiting for education uh, eighteen years later, and rather than investing it too conservative and not making any money. Uh, you know, Don, it's interesting. You, you just you just reminded me of a, a story. You know, I've been 
out on the golf course over the summer and it's always uh, interesting to talk to people about their financial stresses and the one comment that I had from somebody about their education savings plan they, they said well it didn't do very it didn't really make that much money huh. and I said well what do you mean it didn't make that much money he said well you know my son's going to western uh, first year this year and uh, we I think I only made like you know four or five grand on my plan over the course of his uh, of his contribution period, and I, you know, as you said, obviously the investment of choice became my first thought. You know, was it sitting in a savings account or something with very low return, or was it you know fully invested more for the long term and just uh, you know a high risk investment that that went down? So we sort of explored it, and what ended up happening was that his um, his RESP provider actually gave him some bad advice because when he first approached them about taking money out for the fall to pay for his son's tuition and it's 12 grand yes he actually has um, a residency of twelve thousand dollars this year uh, they took it out at the uh, in April huh. so they ca- they cashed it in when the market was down and um, uh, the majority of it and so it was just some really unfortunate decisions that were made and advice that he received. So, yeah, I agree, though. The two things are you got to have it in the right place for the, for, based on the time horizon of when your child will need the money. And then second of all, pay attention as you get closer to the withdrawal time period because uh, you can easily end up having to take money out when things are down. So it's always often good to anticipate at least a year in advance or two years in advance what money you might need, and you might want to park that into something safer while the other money maybe is still invested a little more long-term or a little more aggressively. So anyway, yeah, it was per- you just reminded me exactly of that situation I just talked to somebody about last week. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, case in point, my own daughter decided university was in 1990 right during a recession and the same idea we, we've cut in a balanced portfolio for and it's the same portfolio for all the students but again going into the last two years you, you park some money into a money market fund or something a little safer just in case there's a downturn because you know you're going to be pulling that money out and therefore if there is a downturn like there had been at least you're pulling out something that didn't go down and the worst thing that any advisor could have done is obviously pull it out in april and take that loss and it works out that if you do have $70,000 sitting in your RESP, that's $27,000 of growth that you've made over those 18 years. That's a lot of money that has grown, and that's growth on your own contributions and growth on the government's contributions. Now, you can't honestly, these are one of the best things people should be doing for the kids' education. You can't beat them. Anytime the government's going to give you free money, I know you have to put something in. It's just a great deal. And I find that the, there's a couple things. One of the biggest questions I get is, well, what if my kids don't go to university? And the downside there is, yes, if they don't go to university, the, the grant that the government's given you has to be returned. Okay, not the end of the world. They gave you the money based on they're going to go to university, and they didn't, so therefore, or college, and that money has to be returned. And this... So many things qualify as post-secondary. It can be out of country. It can be trade school. It can be a college. It can be a university. There's so many different areas it can go into. And, you know, I'll go over more of these rules right after the break. And, you know, something, uh, if I can add to that, as a parent and, and my first 
now going off to university at age 18, which is for her up to the bedroom for the first year until, of course, uh, until, of course, uh, the pandemic is over. But how thankful we are to have that now. How thankful we are to have that that money in that situation uh, now, uh, c considering, you know, here we are 18 years in and, and we already got a good start on it. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message, they'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. We're talking about RESPs and getting the kids ready to send off to college or university and uh, as... as uh, my wife just mentioned in my ear here as we're broadcasting this from home, uh, boy, you know, thank goodness that uh, Don and Andy put this money away for Alicia. Otherwise, like, where would we be now? You know, we'd have to scramble for this. And it, if I can make any recommendation to any parents, it's get involved in something like this because, uh, you know, when they're one or two years old, you don't really think about it. But boy, when they're 18, it's hard, it's hard to come up with that money. So it, it's, it was money well spent. That was for sure. Yeah, it's hard to believe 18 years go by so quickly. Yeah. And honestly, there's so many bills to pay throughout those 18 years. It could have gone towards mortgage payments or, yeah. or a new car or what have you. And this regimented savings, next thing you know, you have $70,000. And you only put in 36000 mm -hmm. The other half was government grant money and growth on your money. So the question is now, what if? And this is the one, I, it's almost like a bailout question. I don't really believe in RESPs because... What if the kids don't go to post-secondary? And I think of that as really not a great excuse because if they don't, you still get to keep the, re the growth on the government's money. You have to return the 7200 Your own contributions were still making money all that time, and you get that money back. The only disadvantage, if you do not have another child, you can move those funds to because you could transfer them to another child. But... The grant money always has to be returned because it didn't get used to the right child. Anyhow, worst case scenario is you take them funds out and the growth, you would have to pay 20% penalty on taking that money out. So if uh, you were in a 40% you know, tax bracket and you took out the money and your children did not go to post-secondary, you're in a 40% tax bracket, you would end up paying 60% tax to take the other funds out. Not a great option. The other option, if you have the RRSP room, you can move those funds, that growth portion, into your own RSP, in which case you don't pay the tax until you withdraw it from, uh, from your RSP. And then there is no 20% penalty if you do it that way. So I guess if you really had the room, you could actually move it directly from the RESP to the RSP, and then once, you, once it's there, move it out of the RSP without the 20% penalty and kick it into your bank account. So... It is a great opportunity for you, and I'm looking, like I said, the average education cost in Canada this year is 19500 If you live in Toronto, it could be as high as about twenty three five. so it's not inexpensive. And having that extra seventy grand really takes the stress out of kids going to post-secondary. It truly does. And it doesn't, this is the other 
kind of misnomer. Everybody says, well, what if they don't need it for education? What if they got scholarships? Uh, what if their parents or grandparents gave them money? Great. They don't have to use it for education purposes. They just have to show proof of enrollment, and then you can use it for their new car or keep it aside, put it in other investments for them, put, use it, help them for a down payment on a house. Mm. There's so many other opportunities. Having extra money is never a bad thing. In fact, one thing I, I, I guess is probably a bit of a pet peeve is a lot of people try to manage that pot of money for each year of education because, okay, there's $70,000, and i got to spread that evenly over the four-year program. And I just spoke to an accountant in the past week about this, and they didn't use all the funds. And they had about 15000 left over. And they might, go to po- they might go to get their MBA. I said, okay, that's great, but I'd still be pulling all the money out as fast as I can because you really don't want to have any of those RESP rules around it. And the faster you can get the, fun- the money out, the better. You can- what I actually recommend is why don't we maximize the kids' TFSA every year and let's say, Scott, you're, let's say your daughter's 18 this year. Um, you could put in $6,000 into her TFSA this year from the RESP money. Mm-hmm. And now that growth is tax-free. As opposed to paying tax, she would pay, your daughter, Alicia, would pay the tax on those funds. And so it's a better route to go to move it to a TFSA than it is to just leave it in the RESP. Right. Um, and, and again, because you're using your own contributions, there's no tax on those funds. It's just money sitting there. And now the growth is growing outside of the RESP, no strings attached. Right. You don't have to show proof of enrollment or anything else. And it's a great way to get those funds out, still working just as hard as ever, still getting the same return, but now growing tax-free. So that would be the one thing I would recommend is a lot of parents are trying to spread it over the four years, and I really love to see them try to use it up quicker and then put it into the child's tax-free savings account instead. And if there is a pot of money at the end, great. They can use that to help them buy a, a car or a down payment or whatever makes sense for them in their life at that time. So once the government has added their contribution to it and you've made your money over time, there's really no sense in keeping it. You have more uh, options, more flexibility by taking it out immediately and putting it into um, uh, like a TFSA for them. Yeah, it could be in a TFSA or even a non-registered. But once it's out, you know, the, the child has to pay income tax on the growth in the grant when mm-hmm. you start drawing the funds out. Right. So the first semester, the maximum of the growth and grant portion is $5,000. Mm-hmm. And any, your own contributions can be pulled out at any time. Mm-hmm. There's no strings attached on that. And so, therefore, you have all that growth and grant, and you want to manage that so they don't have to pay a lot of income tax. Right, yeah. So you look at their summer jobs, and if they, let's say they made $5,000, well, over a summer job, they could probably pull out $15,000 of growth and grant and still not pay tax after their personal exemptions and after tuition costs. Mm-hmm. So they'll have an income of $20,000 and it would be tax-free. So this is where having a financial planner to kind of go over those numbers, make sure you're doing it as efficiently as possible. Now that you've done the great job in accumulating the money, now what's the best strategy for taking the funds out? And that's, a, that's an example of some of the things that we talk about to our clients as they're going to university. I was so, just thinking too, Don, as you were mentioning um, the options for these plans, was that uh, I have a client who did not use their uh, 
grandson did not use the plan. And uh, so he just reminded them that they have until almost age 35 to be able to keep the plan open. And um, with a lot of people having different job, uh, you know, there's been a lot of issues around employment with COVID, et cetera. And some people are thinking about retraining and going back to school. So I say, you know, it's hard. The only issue is as the grandparent gets older, that they have to address what would happen to the plan in case they die. But at the other, but the, the main thing is, is that uh, in this case, uh, she still had another 10 years to uh, keep that plan open and qualify to an education program to be able to get it out. So, uh, but as you mentioned, if that doesn't happen, then they are subject to those other restrictions and the penalty of 20% on the growth. Right. And so, end of the day, we you want to accumulate as much money for education as efficiently as possible. The RESP is fantastic. Then on the way out, we also want to do just as good a job in terms of pulling the funds out and making them available for not only education, but for, for, perhaps for other causes too that are just as important. But the bottom line is you want to have it flexible and if you can get it out of the reach of the government's rules, the quicker the better, as long as you're not paying excess tax to the daughter or son or in this case, or daughter in your case, Scott, but in, in the kid's example, or you're not paying tax on it as a penalty. So then the kids go to university, make a lot, and then they get a great job, make tons of money, and then now the next problem is, is what Andy's going to talk about right now. Hey, that's great. Uh, you know, I have to say, I'm going to re- go back to my uh, golf course experiences. <laughs> and, <laughs> and of course, one of the things when people ask you, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a financial planner and specializing in retirement. And, uh, and do you actually get always- to, do you actually get to play any golf or are you just giving advice the whole time? <laughs> well, I'm concerned because I think it's impacting my concentration. <laughs> <laughs> that's it you're winning so they're trying to throw you off exactly yeah they got me thinking about numbers instead of my swing um and you know i think one of the big question is big questions that keep coming up is how much can i spend in retirement and so there, there's that point at which you know everybody has we call it the accumulation phase and that's just the period in which you're trying to build up all of the assets that you're going to have as you begin to head into retirement. And then once you start your retirement, you are actually then switching from the accumulation phase generally to the distribution phase. In other words, we're going to start, you're going to start to use up your money instead of saving it. And so how confident someone is about being able to spend their capital in retirement is a really tricky thing. And everybody has obviously different lifestyles and different amounts that they're going to uh, want to spend. Uh, they might have different lump sum needs. But, you know, for example, somebody might want to buy a new car every four years or five years so that it's a modern car with modern safety features and, um, and obviously less worry about maintenance. Whereas somebody else says, you know what, I keep my car for 15 years. And, uh, and and I'm going to grind it into the ground because that's not a priority. So, you know, we do sort of obviously customize. The, the, the answer is you never know how much you can spend, but you're trying to build as much confidence around what you can spend so that you can enjoy life. And I can't tell you how many times we will sit down with clients in the later years of retirement 
And, you know, do, do you say, did you wish you had saved more or whatever? And in almost all cases, people have more money left than, than they thought they would in the context of not spending along the way for fear of running out or um, just not being confident about being able to pull the trigger and use that capital today, whereas they might need it later on. So when you look at today's retirement situation and just even Googling, you know, what is the average household spending in retirement? And this study was a couple years old. It was 2018, but they talked about $58,000 a year. They were able to look at Statistics Canada information, determine those people over the age of 65 that are filing income tax that their income is average about $58,000 per year. So that's including taxes, right? Uh, And when they looked at um, Canada Pension Plan, for example, and we'll talk a little bit more about Canada Pension Plan in a minute, the average Canadian is receiving about $8,500 of Canada Pension Plan. So it's only about 67% of the maximum. So you could get up to $14,000 a year, roughly, just rounding these things off. Um, And so... Clearly, um, for various reasons, people are not always getting that full amount. So it's ob- you just have to be careful when you're doing your own retirement calculations what to assume in terms of Canada Pension Plan. So when we think about that, uh, the, the distribution phase, and now you're starting to spend the money, and you're trying to figure out, well, how much capital do I need, which is uh, uh, obviously another important question. And there's a number of different rules that you will see out there if you begin to do any research around this. The first rule, is sort of, these are general rules, number one, we'll call it the 4% rule. And in the 4% rule, you just simply take the income that you desire during retirement and you divide it by 4%. So in the case of, let's say, if you have an income of 40000 a year, well, at 4%, you would need uh, $1 million. If you want an income of 60000 a year, that's sort of roughly that Canadian average, uh, you would need $1.5 million at 4%. Now, when you think about 4%, and this is sort of an industry number that's out there, and it's certainly something that I think is a good place to start with. But remember this, that that 4% is an assumption of 7% rate of return minus 3% inflation. So in order to get 7% rate of return, you have to be what we would call moderate or moderate aggressive in terms of your portfolio. So you have to be willing to take on a fair amount of volatility and investment risk to be able to attain that 7%. So keep that in mind as well. So option number two. So first, the first rule was number four. And uh, option two is the same sort of situation, but just gets rid of all the fractions, et cetera. Basically, you just take the income that you desire times 25. So let's say you needed 50000 a year of income, and uh, you would need times 25, $1,250,000. So the nice thing about option two in terms of figuring out how much you need is there's no fractions to worry about. And the third option, and we'll get into I'll touch on this, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more, um, is – what we call the 70% rule. And the 70% rule is that in the context that we only need about 70% of our working income. Now, I want to be very clear here. This assumes that you have uh, no mortgage. You have no mortgage payment. If you have a mortgage payment, then you, and depending on the size of that mortgage, you almost have to ramp up to 100% of your original income. 
So the average Canadian, uh, according to a Sun Life survey, spends about 62% of their pre-retirement income. That was a study done by Sun Life in 2016. So the 70% certainly seems to be a reasonable option as well. So we'll talk about the fourth strategy, and then we want to get into some of the issues around the steps to get this all done, what can change, and then what you need to do to improve on it. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don uh, Don Fox are here from (laughs) IG Private Wealth Management or or whatever. Uh, You can call now, 905-529-7165. Check out the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can ask a question via the listener inquiry button or listen to old archive shows there as well. Quick break. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about spending and how much you can spend in retirement. Yeah, we, talk, we just ran through some of the, the general rules that people can quickly use to get a gauge on what they need to save for retirement. And we talked about the 4% rule, the uh, desired income rule, your income requirement times 25, the 70% rule in terms of how much you would spend. And then uh, the fourth rule is sort of a, um, a multiple factor. So you take your pre-retirement income and you multiply that by anywhere from 10 up to 14. So, if you, for example, if you had $100,000 of income, uh, you would need 10 times that, so at least a million dollars, up to 14 times that, or $1.4 million. And um, that would be your income just pre-retirement. And so it, when I think about all four of those steps, the, um, the question still comes into, you know, how much income do I need per year? And the only way to drill down on that is to do what we call a cash flow analysis. So step one is a cash flow analysis. And, um, and there, are some great, um, there are some great tools out there on the web to, uh, to actually start analyzing where you're spending money. Um, <clears throat> there's no right or wrong way to do this. But basically what you're trying to do is keep track of where does your money go and have a, have a handle on understanding what are the um, – fixed costs, the things that are going to be part of your retirement all the time. And then what are your your um, your non-fixed costs, those sort of variables that are part of the <clears throat> things that make life fun, right? The second step in this process then is what government benefits are you going to have available? And we talked a little bit about that. Old age security at 65, assuming you've been here your life, you, is about $7,300 a year. And Canada Pension Plan at its maximum is about 14000 a year. So let's just round that up. We say we got $21,500. Now, remember, the average CPP is only about 67% of that uh, maximum. So it'd be, instead of fourteen, it would be around 9000 So just be careful. Uh, you know, if you've been solidly working and making a, a decent, you know, above sort of that 55000 threshold, 60000 threshold, you're, you're probably maxing out at CPP. But uh, be aware of that. And then the third thing is then figuring out what do I need to save? And uh, so let's just do a quick example. If you had a $70,000 per year of spending per cup for a couple, and that was your goal during retirement, then the first thing we'd want to think about is, okay, what do we always, what do we already have coming in? So that would be your Canada pension plan, 
your old age security and if you have a defined benefit pension plan uh, or pension plan at work that's providing a regular income. So if we assume in an example of a 70000 a year spending, uh, let's say they have 30000 a year coming in from CPP and OAS together, and so that leaves a $40,000 gap, which has to come from savings. So in, in, order, in other words, if you want to have a 70000 a year income, you probably need to save about a million dollars. And, uh, and that's for a couple. And so, you know, one of the things that um, uh, we think about in this process, and, I, and I'm just trying to simplify it for people to just to get a handle on this and kind of get a good idea. Because, again, the only way you're going to feel confident about this is if you have a plan in place and that plan addresses the issues we've just talked about, but it also addresses what can change. And when we think about the things that can change during retirement, the first one that, you know, for all of us right now, health obviously has been something on the forefront. Uh, so our health can change. Um, something else that, some, that we've, I've heard from clients and we know as part of COVID, too, is our financially dependent kids. In some cases, people are finding adult children coming back to the household uh, because of a, a job loss, etc. So financially dependent kids can have an impact on this. Uh, divorce, you know, if you're thinking about a two-income retirement, uh, suddenly a one-income retirement cut in half means your lifestyle is cut in half. So there's obviously main issues, around, significant issues around divorce. Uh, the big thing, too, coming into retirement is do you have debt? And that mortgage payment is something that is in a, a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to, you know, creating that confident retirement and, and with your cash flow. The next thing is inflation. We could have periods where there's high inflation, which erodes your purchasing power, and so you might need to assess that. And a stock market crash is something that uh, obviously can impact you as well. And to that extent, uh, you know, we think about the order of withdrawal or where money would come from during a period like that. So, you know, there's a lot that can change during that the, the decumulation phase, the distribution phase, and that is... Um, is something as part of the process for Don and I, when we're meeting with our clients who are retired on a regular basis, that we try to understand what things are, what's happening in their lives and what do we need to do to adjust their living plan to, to address that and maintain a high level of confidence in their ability to continue to spend and maintain their lifestyle. So what are some of the things you can do once you address these things, or let's say one of these issues comes along, whether it's health or divorce, et cetera. Um, well, certainly we can think about working longer, and that's something that people have considered under the COVID scenario. And, uh, and so we've got a couple more I just want to cover on terms of what we can do in terms of maximizing our retirement and getting, continuing to feel confident about being able to spend and enjoy our lifestyle. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, 
The guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Having enough money to spend during retirement is what we're talking about. Exactly. So we sort of talked about the steps, uh, the process to determine how much do I need, uh, and then we talked about how we're going to get there, uh, what what income sources we have to talk uh, to deal with, what could change during our retirement, and then finally sort of what do we do to adjust as some of these things happen. And we talked about maybe working longer, you could also work part-time, you could also delay your government benefits, and that's a function if you, if you do work a little bit longer and you defer your benefits, you're going to get an increase in the amount you receive from Canada Pension Plan and Old Age Security. And another option is to really think about saving aggressively. And when I talk about saving aggressively, it's, it's not uncommon where we see clients in that final push towards retirement, those last three, five years, where they've got good cash flow, the kids are finished with university, and now they're, and they're in their peak earning years, you know, and they want to save aggressively. And we think about our savings rate. I mean, it used to be, it was 20% back in 1981 during that time period, and, and today we're at less than five. It, it's way down. But, uh, you know, I'll give you an example why a pre-authorized contribution, every, putting money in every single month is so important. I have a client who said, oh, I'm going to invest um, 50000 a year from the proceeds from my business because we've been doing well and I know that I can do that. And I said, well, why don't we start saving 4000 a month? And he said, no, 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 because sometimes I have cash flow issues. I'll do it at the end. I'll do it at the end of my business year. Well, the end of the business year came, and well, we never really did end up doing 50. I think, in fact, one year, and this is over the last couple of years, one year we did zero, one year we did like 30, and one year we did, I think, 25. So we never got close to that 50. Whereas if he had done 4000 a month, I bet you we would have had that money in there because it was automated and it was hands-off. Finally, you can adjust your retirement spending, I guess, and spend less. We can think about downsizing, and of course, uh, there are government safety nets like GIS, etc. So, retirement's a fantastic thing for everybody. There are a lot of moving parts, and um, the goal is to feel as confident as possible about your own retirement. And uh, and I think with that confidence and clarity with your retirement plan, you're going to you're going to live that lifestyle of retirement that you were dreaming of. Yes, and, and like you said, one one way is to lower your expenses. I think everybody is uh, during COVID is may have taken a notch down on their expenses. Uh, traveling has decreased. Uh, entertainment, restaurants, maybe a little pickup in the last couple of months, but generally speaking, people are spending less. But one area, it's interesting, and I'm going to do a quick quiz with you two here. Do either of you rent your refrigerator or rent your dishwasher? No. No. No, it, it wouldn't make sense. They're about $1,000 to buy, I suppose, and, and if you, you, know, you just pay for it. It, it, the question, the reason I'm asking, do you either of you rent your hot water tank? No. Yes. No. Sorry, no. I bought it. I just remember. <laughs> really good, Scott. Both of you, for that matter, because Ontario seems to be the only province that rents hot water tanks. And we're talking millions of them. Yeah. The same company that rents them in Ontario doesn't rent any in Alberta because they're not into that. And it's interesting how much... so. A case in point, 
my mother bought her hot, or rented her hot water tank. And by the way, you can buy a hot water tank, gas hot water tank, um, a good one, for about $1,000. About the same as a good dishwasher or a good uh, refrigerator. And she's owned this thing now for 18 years. Now, the rent on that started at $18.36 a month, which what happens is the reason they sell this, it's like, okay, well, if it breaks down, it's a service contract, and therefore we'll come and fix it for free. Well, we don't do that for your dishwasher or your fridge. You wouldn't even think about that. Well, if it breaks down, you pay for it. That's just the way it is. And yet millions of Ontarians do this, and that same $18.36 a month and she has never had anybody walk into her house, which I guess is a good thing. It's never broken down. She is now paying $31.80 a month for the exact same hot water tank. So over those 18 years, she has paid a little over $5,000 for this hot water tank. And it is absolutely amazing how far, like I've talked to some people that are paying $56 a month for a high-end one. These contracts are very tough to get out of. They're often 14-year contracts. And really, if you just look at buying it, if you went out and bought it and used a line of credit and used that same payment to pay off the line of credit, it would be paid off in three years. And you could, you could have a brand new hot water tank every three years <laughs> using a line of credit, and nobody would do that either. Just like you don't get a brand new fridge every three years or a brand new dishwasher every three years. Maybe, maybe 10 years, but for whatever reason, we have a different opinion on hot water tanks and it's one that I don't know how we got involved in this, but I personally think it's a, it's, it's a total waste of money. And if anybody, anybody listening today could look at their contract, quite often it's interesting. You have to pay $700 to get out of the contract hmm. if it's before 14 years. And it definitely hasn't worth $700. This is a 14-year-old hot water tank. Uh, to any of those who have a cottage or live rurally, it's the same thing with a propane tank. You can buy it... Uh, outright, or you can lease it for uh, you know this uh, a lower amount of money, but over a longer period of time. And we worked it out. I, you, you pretty much pay it off in six years, and they last twenty years. So right. the rest, you're overpayment. It's absolutely amazing. And we have somehow have got a little lazy with these things. It's one of those things you just kind of pay. Um, I know in my mother's case, she pays quarterly. I'm sure but there's a lot of people pay monthly. It's this, but to me, it's just simply another appliance that we use every day. And we would never do that for your refrigerator, your dishwasher, or any other higher-end appliance. Why are we doing this for a hot water tank? Every, everybody listening, go check yours out, and maybe you can save yourself $25, $30 a month. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows there or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.